Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. We are having an amazing time in La Jolla, California in January of 2023, and our guest with us today is just an amazing fellow by the name of Gavin Starks. Gavin is the co-founder of the Open Data Institute. He is now the founding CEO of Icebreaker One. He's done many, many other things in his career, and we're going to hear more about that as we spend this time with him today. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Gavin, thank you for joining us on This is Design Intelligence. Pleasure to be here. So we were having this great conversation with Paul Horowitz, and you just mentioned something, and boom, you guys went off. Tell us what was going on there, and I think it, it gives us a, a, a look into who is Gavin Starks. Thank you. Uh, well, I studied astrophysics at Glasgow University uh, and ended up working at Jodrell Bank Radio Telescope. Uh, so we, were, we just started to geek out around astronomy and, and observations and just really the, the, the tech. You know, we were talking about everything from uh, specific types of uh, cosmic rays to um, laying fiber through forests. So it was a, a bit of a broad conversation, I think, yeah, around yeah, yeah. Uh, just broadly geeking out around. Uh, so that. astrophysics yeah. to Open Data Institute to Icebreaker One. And in between all of that is quite a journey, I'm sure. But tell us more about you. Uh, yeah, well, the um, I've always had a, a drive to learn. I've always been, I'm always learning trying to step into spaces I've got no idea about. And that's really the, the common theme. And it gets me into all manner of trouble. Uh, I think if, if you'd asked me at age 20, you know, if I'd be an entrepreneur, I'd have just looked at you very, in a very confused way. So I'd never had any ambition to set up companies. Uh, but the, the sort of curiosity piece uh, really gets the, the better of me a lot. But after the astrophysics piece, I actually did a, a master's degree in electronic music. and. Um, those things may sound very far apart, but at the heart of uh, astrophysics is maths, physics, and computing. And the work I was doing uh, in electronic music was maths, physics, and computing. And we were fortunate, just kind of quirk of fate, that in the early 90s, of all places on Earth, Glasgow University Music Department bought a warehouse of Next computers. Come on. And nobody had any idea how to set them up. So me and one other guy set up this whole network between computing science, electronic engineering, music, recording studios, and started doing all manner of um, audio stuff on, the, on, the, on those machines. And they bought them because they had a, a digital signal processing chip inside. And so we started doing real-time audio over the internet. And uh, my first bit of paid research that I did while I was there was um, to review all of the music software on the internet, uh, which you could do. There were four sites. You know, it was, uh, there weren't even websites. There was things like Gopher, and, yeah, and uh, you know, way, way way back in the day, yeah. right? So that you know, kind of super interesting. Had a had a blast. Uh, ran a couple of recording studios. Ended up teaching uh, sound engineering, and uh, there was a, a joint course in um, engineering and music uh, where the students were probably a year younger than me. But uh, we, we definitely had a blast doing that. Um, and then I went back in uh, to the radio astronomy thing at uh, Jodrell. 
And that was also, you know, massively uh, privileged kind of experience, you know, 120 of the, you know, some of the world's best scientists in the middle of Cheshire in, in England. And uh, I think there was a, a point about it a year into that where I was like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take me a while to get my head around this. So I was, I was the youngest member of staff there by 10 years. So I was sitting at coffee one morning, and I was just like, it's going to take me 10 years before I can contribute to this conversation. Uh, so it was that kind of level of really high-end science and, and people just with you know, super brains. Um, but while I was there, you know, I um, was working with one of my, my colleagues and we set up that website. This is like 93, 94. In hindsight, it was one of the first thousand websites in the UK. And I then started getting these sort of approaches on people find my email on um, bulletin boards and things. And I got this very cryptic message saying, what do you think the future of the web is? Uh, and to, to cut a longer story short, that, that led to me joining a startup called VirginNet in 95, um, which was Virgin's foray uh, onto the web. And uh, we literally did everything there, but the first thing they asked me to do was start streaming Virgin Radio uh, online. And that was the first station in Europe. Uh, and turns out that stuff I'd been doing on the next machines randomly had a, had a use, all came forward. Yeah. Uh, they also said, oh, could you build a search engine? There were quite a few moments there where it was, it was quite funny. It was like my, my boss at the time, there was a fifth person there. He said, oh, could you build a search engine for you know, tomorrow afternoon? <laughs> and so we did. So you know, we indexed sure. 100,000 sites and you know, off we went. And, and he, he came back to me and said, I was joking. You know, so wow. it was quite funny. But that kind of set a, a course, I think. Working at Virgin was a, a real um, vertical learning curve. Learning about the power of the brand, the fearlessness that they could step into projects with. They ended up hiring a, the team that had set up Wired Magazine in the UK. And so that kind of really accelerated my understanding of uh, what questions we should be asking about the web. Again, this is 95, 96, and so on. So it's really early days. And we, we built everything we could think of. You know, we built uh, listing services, education, you know, all the channels that kind of people were looking at at the time. We built an ISP. Um, we built the... Um, Kind of whole webcasting functions. We started doing loads of uh, streaming media stuff, and uh, yeah, Virgin. That's now Virgin Media. It's one of the largest media companies in the UK, and that was you know a fantastic experience. Four years right in the middle of the dot com explosion, and that kind of piqued my interest. So I started obviously then talking to a lot of people. Got was trying to get the broadcasters interested in streaming, and uh, you know at the time it was a thumbnail, three frames a second. Yeah. I uh, think going into like Channel 4 and BBC and they're like, yeah, we, it's kind of interesting, but it's, it's not going to be a big deal really, is it? And I was like, no, I think this is going to destroy your industry. I was going to totally transform it. So fast forward, you know, I was at Virgin for four years and then I just got calls again, like come and help us set up this, set up that and so on. And eventually I just said to someone, well, you know, why don't you just hire my company in the middle of a call? I didn't have a company. I haven't thought of setting up a company. Don't you hire my company? But, uh, I don't have a company. <laughs> but they, they went, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know you were doing that. I said, yeah, I'm just starting it up, you know, really on the fly. Um, and uh, they said, great, can you come in on, on Thursday? And I said, well, yeah, sure, we'll be there. Hung up the phone, picked the phone up again, called a few friends saying, so, <laughs> do you want to join a company? <laughs> and to their absolute credit, they just dropped what they were doing and came. And so we set up a streaming media company, 99, uh, and then uh, grew that over uh, three, four years. Uh, I think we were the second biggest streaming company in Europe at that point. 
So Gavin, yeah. I, I, you know, the, the thing that comes out, and I certainly saw it yesterday at the Design Futures Council sessions, is that you have an optimistic confidence about doing things. It's, um, and I don't know if that's just a part of your character or, or if you just see that things are, everything's addressable, but most people will always throw excuses out why I can't do something as opposed to, sure, let's do it. Has that always been the way you've operated? You know, it's a really good question. I've reflected on it quite a lot. You know, as you get older, you're like, you know, why are, we, why are people, other people finding it hard to step into spaces of just getting stuff done? And I think there's a couple of things I'd point to. One of them is actually just where I grew up. I grew up on the Isle of Arran off the west coast of Scotland. Population of the island is 4,000. The village I grew up on is 700 people. So if something needs to get done, you're going to do it. Right? There isn't a, there's not a kind of thing you get in cities of like, oh, somebody else will do that. There's no, there's no other. Right? Or if you're, even if you're like walking down the street, you're not going to drop litter because your friend's dad is the one who's going to pick it up and they're going to give you hell for it. Right. There's a really sort of direct sense of agency. You know the person who's running the council, even though you're you know, seven. You know who the doctor is. You know who the teachers are. You know, they're all in your house. You know. So there's a sense of there of direct agency, which I, I've reflected a lot. It's one of the things that is really challenging when you're trying to tackle these kind of seemingly wicked problems. It's people say, ah, oh, well, you know, I, can't, I, could, I could do that, but that person over there needs to do it, so I don't really feel I've got agency. So at a really early age, I think I, I felt, well, it's just that guy over there, so I'm going to talk to him. Um, and the second piece of that reflection is in astrophysics. You cannot build anything that's going to measure and map the universe on your own. That's not a thing. <laughs> so collaboration is baked into the way that you think. The people who built uh, George Bank, you know, software engineers there who were writing all the control systems, People writing, I was part of a team that was helping to um, manage a million lines of code. There's five of us. So you also get a sense of uh, you need a small number of really talented people who know what they're doing, and they can just get on with it. Yeah. And, and um, you know, with, with Jodrell, and Jodrell Bank's you know, famous for, for many things, it was, the, the only, uh, it was one of the only observatories to be able to track Sputnik when it uh, was launched. Um, involved in the Apollo missions. It's where they discovered pulsars. Um, but it's a tiny team with a relatively tiny budget. You know, the, the marketing budget for the Hubble Space Telescope is about the size of the Jodrell Bank budget. So um, how to do like, really seemingly unfeasible things with a relatively small team and a relatively small uh, budget, again, sort of baked into both of those bits of experience. So you have these wicked problems, a small, well-defined team. The problem is gargantuan compared to the, the team. It's a David and Goliath type of dynamic. How do you approach giant problems at the beginning anyway, or challenges? Well, I think the pattern for me, you know, now I've helped to create about 13 companies. I've incubated about 40 over the years. And, and the pattern is I'll sit down at events like this and talk to people. I said, what problems have you got? And you chat and say, well, you know, could we solve that? And then you have more and more conversations. Eventually someone says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We should get someone to do that. I said, well, should we do it? Should we just fix it? Mm -hmm. Or should we have a goal? Have you got any money? You know, we'll go and hire the team and, and, and get on with it. So it's really driven through curiosity. And, and that's really the, the pattern is I'll just go and speak to you. And, and if I use Icebreaker One as an example, 
after I'd left the Open Data Institute, I spent a year uh, traveling and, and talking to people. And I was asking this sort of question of, you know, how, what are we going to do about climate? I've had a couple of goals at trying to do something and haven't had the impact that we'd, we'd like to yet. Lots of reasons, but mostly, you know, timing, you know, appetite. The US is quite an interesting uh, country when it comes to trying to deal with climate change. Interesting is a, a very <laughs> non-committal word, yes. Um, I'll come back to that. But um, I said, like, well, who needs to care the most about climate in the economy from an economic perspective? And I was like, well, it's probably the pension funds. They've got to think the longest. Uh, so they've got the, the pension funds have a, you know, most companies have, they're worried about the next quarter, maybe the next three years, maybe. Mm -hmm. They'll have a three-year target, but it's not, you know, it's not a high priority. It's, it's not on their watch. Similar with political cycle, even though it's the mandate of, of uh, politicians, is you've got to work out what's benefit for society. They're on a you know, short cycle. So when you think about pension funds, they've got to think about a 25 plus year horizon. And so I was like, okay, well, there's a category. In it. And then insurance companies, they've got to think about this. They're, they're underwriting infrastructure. So we started talking to the insurance companies about you know, how are you thinking about climate change? And I, yeah, it's quite hard. So we started a whole conversation there, and I, over, um, I'd say about a period of about 18 months, I, I probably spoke to four or 500 people. Wow. And that led us to create Icebreaker One. We then brought together a consortia with Aon, um, Lloyd's Register, uh, Willis Towers Watson, um, Arup, and, and the ambition of that uh, project initially was to create a climate-ready financial product. That was the, the mandate that I laid down. Because they, none of them have been able to articulate to me how they were really going to embody climate risk in their uh, product suite. So that, that's kind of the, uh, an example of how that well, started. I, I just think talking it, to loads of people. It's curiosity. Yeah, it's it's asking lots of questions. It's forcing yourself to not conclude too quickly. And it's, I think in pretty much every case, it's having no clue about the industry that I'm talking to before. Which is, which is a, a back to your earlier statements of you're ever learning. Exactly. And, and it's been a, a, definitely a benefit. And I think when um, one of the initiatives I got involved with, I got a call from uh, UK Treasury thanking me for, you know, it's like voluntold. Thank, thank you for agreeing to co-chair the open banking uh, development. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know. I have a bank account. I know, I, I know what a P&L is, but I, I don't know anything about the sector. And they said, yeah, that's exactly why we want you to, to get involved in it. So the, that, that's really the, the pattern, is, is stepping into space and going, well, this, this is interesting. How can we bring different teams together? And I think in the session we had yesterday, there was a commonality between our two presentations. Mm -hmm. Hale was talking about multidisciplinary teams and how you bring them together and they solve problems completely different way. And that's another pattern, I'd say, is bringing together the different types of creative people. Because everyone's creative in different ways. You know, your finance people, get, get the creative finance people, get the creative engineers, bring in the artists. And, and a lot of initiatives have, have genuinely brought together the technical people with the business heads, with artists. You know, we, it's, it's, it seems quite left field. With the beginning of the ODI, the very first thing that we did was commission art. And a very interesting, again, that word interesting, conversation with number 10. Yeah. He called me up and said, we've just funded you to build the Open Data Institute. What are you doing commissioning art? Like, <laughs> you don't understand. Uh, they, were, they weren't very happy. Um, but what that did is it translated the work. 
translated the point of Absolutely. that institution. Because the program was data as culture. Because data is a cultural phenomenon, it is not a technology. So we sat in an audience yesterday and that represents the built environment industry, architects, engineers, thinkers, designers of different types, construction, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting it, as a difference, the contrast between a banking industry, which is highly regulated and runs on a set of, of regulated standards, and then you have the built environment industry, which is really cottage in the sense that I can go to school, I can get licensed, registered, move into a town, hang up my sign, and I'm an architect, right? And there's really nothing regulating me other than the local codes, right? So there is not a unity in this, in this industry. There's not a unity between architects and engineers and constructors. It's a very amorphous kind of thing. And so we're trying to take this rigor that you're talking about that was certainly done in the banking industry, it's been done in other industries that you've been working in, and how do we get a lasso around this very Wild West industry that always has an excuse for why it can't transform as opposed to we are determined to transform? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I think a couple of reflections. So in our work with the energy sector, they, we had a similar sort of dynamic of, well, we're, we're different to the banks. We're, you know, completely, there's no similarities here. And you've got to remember, one of the network operators in the UK said to me, you've got to remember, like, a few years ago, our job was to dig a hole and put a cable in the ground, right? right? So that, we, we don't have a chief data officer. We're not quite sure what this data stuff's for, right? Yeah, we have, you know, the, the uh, engineers and say they, they obviously use data, but what are you talking about and, and I think there, the, the, the underlying piece here is we're all working with the environment in which we're living. Right? And what is happening is we're codifying it. You know, globally, there are more sensors than people. We're, we've got real-time Earth observation. Whole Earth, every day, two, three meters of resolution, multispectral. You've got sensors on the ground, you've got sensors on assets. So the whole thing is being digitized. The world's being digitized. And the parallel I draw is the web, you know, the um, origins of the web. It wasn't, you know, we didn't sit down and, and kind of go, well, let's build a global communications network and work out all the standards and all the use cases and, you know, how to build e-commerce and streaming media. That wasn't where it started. It started with Tim Berners-Lee saying, I'd like to share a link to my research with somebody else. And, and that very simple concept of how, how do we link things together? How do we connect two pieces of information mm -hmm. in a way that is very scalable? Was at right at the heart of that. And the, the need was to share knowledge. So as an architect, as an engineer, as a policymaker, what do we need to do? We need to share knowledge. Who do we need to share it with? Everyone. Who do we need to get information from? Also everyone. How are we going to do that? Well, there's a billion websites. We've spent the last 30 years building what I call the web of documents. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the features about that is, yeah, if you're an architect, you've got a website. Was that a was that hard thing to do? Is it, yes, I mean, obviously in the early days of the web, all of my friends were like, what are you doing? What's the point? I'm never going to book a cinema ticket on the web. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like crazy. I'm not going to buy all my clothes on the, online. You know, I want to put them on there. And you're kind of like, yeah. Maybe not yet, but 
we'll get there. Obviously, it took a bit longer. You know, when you're 20-something, you're like, oh, this is all going to happen in the next three years. Yeah, and yeah. 20 years later, you're like, oh, we're just starting. So, um, but the common need there was to connect information. And we've done it once with documents. Mm -hmm. The next phase is doing it for data. And this is where it is, we're at the beginning, I think, still of this transformation to the web of data. Tim Berners-Lee gave a talk, at a TED Talk, over a decade ago, saying the next thing we've got to do is the web of data. So it's probably about right, if Tim was saying it 10 years ago, probably about right time now for everyone to be going, okay, so what, what did that mean? Because it takes about 10 years for these ideas to sort of even sink in. So as an architect, you know, what, what, do you, what do you want to do? Well, you want to make a better experience. You want to create value for your customers. Mm -hmm. But also we've got these environmental crises, not just climate change, but a whole range of other things. We've got resource scarcity. We've got to build more resilience into our infrastructure. So how are you going to do that? Are you going to go back and do more courses and learn all the, you know, different, or are you going to start collaborating more with peers? And not just peers who are sitting physically next to you, but peers who are anywhere in the world trying to do exactly the same thing as you. Doing the same thing. Because yeah. if somebody sitting in Italy has exactly the same problem as you, you've both got a small architecture practice, you're not competing with each other. You just share, you know, build a community around that. How are you going to share best practice, knowledge, and so on? And so there's a, it's bringing together the intelligence of the humans, the fact we've connected the humans globally with the intelligence of the machines. And you know, lots of talk here yesterday about AI and stuff like that. And AI is going through a massive transformation itself. You know, the, the amount of um, words written in the last year, you know, it seems to be, it's growing very rapidly. But we are at a bit of an inflection point around machine learning and artificial intelligence, just you know, better algorithms is mm -hmm. one of the ways to think about it. So the ability to include the machines in the conversation is sitting, you know, how are we going to do that? You know, so if you're sitting there as an architect and you want to collaborate with people on, and say, like, how are we going to build, how are we going to solve this particular problem, build, a, uh, build something that's you know, net zero, energy neutral, water neutral, et cetera, like the, the, um, and contribute as net positive for the biosphere. Let's have you know, the, your, your peers from around the world working with you on that and you working with them, and in the mix there'll be a machine. The machine will be coming up with other ideas from a different perspective. And it just comes back to they were just part of your multidisciplinary team. There it is. So one of the things that we are focused on in this quarter at Design Intelligence is a thing that we're calling resilient security. It's an interesting thought to put those together because far too often people think about security, whether that's physical security or cybersecurity or public health security or different kinds of things, but it's decoupled from the idea of being resilient. The majority of the time, it's episodic security, right? And so we're focused on how do we create security on multiple levels that has a sense of it is fit, right? It can recover from a hit and get right back up and be resilient. When we're talking about transformation, we're talking about data, and we're, we're seeing the growing intrusions into disruption cybersecurity disruption, how are you approaching this whole, this whole dimension of data through the lens of resilient security? Another good question. I think one of the learnings from the development of open banking, it's all the banks said, look, we've got all the technology. We've got open APIs, we've got partnerships, what's, what's broken? And we pointed out that actually the underlying regulations have shifted. You know, GDPR has given the right to the data back to the consumer. It's not your data. It's, 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 the, it's, the consumer, it's your customer's data. 
So they need to be able to choose what they want to do with it. You're not enabling that. Right? You're also, um, I'd say, deeply inefficient in the way you're doing things. People were screen scraping each other's websites. That actually was illegal. Right? So there's a few things there where you kind of go, we could do that better. And, and higher risk. You know? And certainly from a, a customer point of view, there was no mode of redress. If something went wrong, who are you going to sue? So one of the things that open banking does is it creates a common legal framework for data sharing. It gives consent management control to the customer. So as an individual customer of a bank, whether you're an SME or whether you're an individual, you have the control over where your data goes. But you also have a mode of redress because it's regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. So the banks have a mode of redress. They can go sue the startups. The startups can sue the banks, the customer. They can all sue each other. As soon as you get that you know, legal framework in place, suddenly the game changes. Because everyone goes, OK, well, we've all agreed the same rules. So actually, we can now innovate on top of that. So it's not, it's not a threat that shuts down innovation. It's a framework that you can build on because everyone's agreed the same rules. And so you then can manage the liability. You can manage the risks and controls. Yeah. There's a legal framework. There's a security framework around it. And everyone can just calm down a bit because they're not worried about that fintech company who hasn't complied with X, Y, Z. If they've signed up to the open banking standard, it's clear. And I think there's a lot of parallels that we could sort of draw from in that in voluntary standards and people coming together. And you've got to remember as well, we didn't regulate the existence of the web. In fact, there was a massive fight between cable, effectively cable TV and the open web. There were lots of walled garden approaches, you know, the AOLs of the world. And it was really uncertain at the time as to, in the mid 90s as to who was going to win. Obviously, I believe the open web would win because I think open always wins in the long term. You know, but you can make lots of short term value with walled garden approaches, but longer term, kind of open approaches tend to win. Because ultimately, there's quite a, a kind of deep capitalist basis to this of you want an open market, you want a free market. Mm -hmm. well, how do you create a free market? Well, transparency, mm -hmm. interoperability. In a digital world, transparency and interoperability are at the heart of uh, the, the digital economy. Um, so it doesn't stop people trying to create loads of propriety things and locking everything up, but Ultimately, somebody else comes along and says, actually, I think there's more value if we raise the bar, if we raise this pre-competitive layer higher. So I think that there's a lot of elements in the, in the answer to, you, to your uh, question there about resilience and, and, and security. It's if we're all going together, then we can create something that works for everyone. That's just fantastic. I, I have to tell you, I, we could keep doing this for the next few hours, but sadly, we're at the end of this episode of our time here. Together, I just want to say thank you to you for joining me on This Is Design Intelligence. What a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This Is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.